Have you ever given a kid, or in my case, a grandkid, a horsey back ride? And you can go all the way around the house. In our case, it's down in South Carolina, and they've got a big house, and they've got a big yard, and go all the way around the house, and I'm just exhausted. But that kid's going, again, again. Because they just want a repeat performance. They want that same excitement that you just experienced or that they experienced because of you. And you're exhausted, but they want a repeat uh, experience. One time, I think it was probably our youngest daughter, Callie. This just popped into my head. It's not in my notes. Uh, she and a friend wanted me to take them to Cedar Point, America's roller coast. And there are all kinds of rides that can spin you around and put you up and down and all around roller coasters and stuff like that. And I'd had just about as much fun as I could stand. And they said, we're going to go one more time on this one. You want to go again, Dad? And I said, to tell you what, I'm having so much fun vicariously experiencing this ride by watching how much fun you're having that I'm just going to sit here on this bench for about another 15 minutes and I'm going to let you go. Because they want again, again. We want that repeat performance. Well, sometimes it's tempting to look at something in Scripture and we think, oh, that's just a repeat performance. That's the same thing that he did back over here. And we want to just kind of skim through it and make our way beyond that. And we could be tempted if we were reading at a surface level and not really comparing and contrasting the feeding of the 5,000 with the feeding of the 4,000. And we could say, ah, repeat performance. Or as some skeptics would claim, one of them was just made up because they're trying to make it sound better than it really was. And so they just invented a few new details and threw another one in there just for the sake of throwing it in there. Well, that doesn't make sense. And we're going to see why. So we're going to read this passage, Mark 8, 1 through 10. And then we're going to start contrasting the 4,000 with the 5,000 because God has some wonderful insights for us today. And I think a lot of scholars actually miss the main point about this particular second miracle. And why would Jesus do some things differently the second time around than he would the first? We're going to find that out today. Mark 8, 1 through 10. About this time, another large crowd had gathered. Kind of an important word, another. And the people ran out of food again. Another important word. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way. For some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, But how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in this wilderness? And Jesus asked, How much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. And he gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too, so Jesus blessed those and told the disciples to distribute them. And they ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. And there were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into the boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are not boring. You're never boring. 
And you always reveal yourself and new exciting meaning if we'll spend enough time gazing at your word and just listen to see what you have for us. And I'm grateful that you have something for us today. And I pray that you'll help the gospel come alive with freshness. And as we continue to deepen our relationship with you and hopefully with others so that they too can see you, I pray that you'll do all that as we start to imagine what these disciples were learning and then apply it to our own lives. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we come to that word again, again. About that time, another large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. So what does it mean if I say again? If I said, you know, we went to that same restaurant over in Ipsy again. Well, duh. I mean, it just kind of, by definition, it means that we had to have done that again some other time previously to this particular time. And that's exactly what Mark means. And you should know that there are other gospel writers who continue to give these details as well. Mark is telling us in chapter 8 about a separate miracle from the 5,000. And by the way, it's recorded in all four of the gospels. And this second feeding miracle is recorded in both Matthew and Mark. And there are some identical details there. So there's corroborative evidence, just so you'll know. And for those of you who might say, yeah, but weren't these Gospels written a long time after these incidents happened so that people could pretty much make up whatever they wanted to? I would say, Mikey, we've had this talk. (laughs) Uh, These were written probably around the 60s AD, much closer than most people might think. And we have other ancient history artifacts and writings which came much, much later than than that. And we don't dispute those. And so I think it's good for us to know that these came very close. Let me show you a photo of some items that I put on my kitchen table and took a picture of. You can see, if you look closely, little writing in tiny little uh, pilot pen that my mother would put on the bottom of objects. She did that all the time. And I found out that Tom's mother had done the same thing. She was meticulous in terms of keeping notes for everybody. Mom would say, I got this angel at a Christmas tree trim party in 1985. It was brought to me by so-and-so. Or she would say, when I pass off this mortal coil, I want my children to have this object or whatever. And we found dozens and dozens of objects like this around my mom's house when Joy was helping take care of her estate. So now if my mom and if Tom's mom are that meticulous about keeping notes because they want to make sure that they can reference it correctly later in history... Don't you think that it's not a stretch to imagine that these disciples who saw life-changing, historical, huge miracles would want to somehow document those things so that they could reflect the accuracy of those events? And in fact, that's exactly what they did. And we can count on the inspired scriptures to put forward to us exactly what happened. And they did so very, very factually. Well, Jesus always meets physical needs, and anytime he does something physically, he's teaching a spiritual lesson, and he does so even in his healings and in his miracles. He always kind of turns something into an actual parable, a, a life lesson and a parable. So if all we got on the surface level was, wow, Jesus is powerful, and he can control nature, and he can break bread and bless it and multiply it, that's great, and that shows us a lot, but I think we're going to find a lot more that goes much deeper under the surface as we peel away the layers of this onion. Here's a basic application for us about Jesus' miraculous feedings. He's concerned about the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's true. And yet he's always feeding people and taking care of their physical needs. And we need to be doing that as well. 
In fact, this is a good time for me to put a parenthetical note about the Hope Clinic because I found out uh, in a symposium that I attended a few weeks ago that a lot of charities like the Hope Clinic, this one is run by people who really care about the Lord and they minister to people spiritually but also very physically. People can come and get dental care and physicians can look after them. They get a food pantry. There's so many things that the Hope Clinic can do for folks. But they tend to run out of money right after December because December is a really good month for people to get their pocketbook that tingles and they think, oh, I just feel so generous and I have the Christmas spirit and I'm going to give all this money. And then January comes around and very often these shelves can be just nearly empty. So we're going to look beyond Christmas this year and throughout the month of December you'll be hearing about different ways that we can start looking ahead to see if we can do more than just give at Christmas to those who are really in need in our backyard. We're making our Christmas emphasis the Operation Christmas Child, and a lot of you are really pouring into that, I understand. Uh, in fact, I had one person say, and they meant this in total love, that Lisa Dolinger is crazy. <laughs> because she has really become a visionary for how many boxes she wants to make sure that they get put together. And I'm so grateful. We need more crazy people if that's the fact. So anyway... And are we going to give sometimes to people who will take advantage of our generosity? Sure, that's going to happen, definitely. Joy and I, several years ago, were contacted through our church about a family that were really in desperate need, they claimed, uh, for some food and whatnot. And our church was putting together some Thanksgiving dinner boxes with all the preparations, including a turkey. And so we had one of those set aside for this family, and we drove out to them. And we got inside, but we got there a little bit earlier than they were expecting, so they didn't have a chance to push the other three boxes that they had already gotten from different churches around the corner into another room. And we kind of realized that they'd been calling lots of churches that year. Now, did we turn around and say, oh, you've got plenty of food, we're taking this away? No, we gave it to them, because who knows, maybe they were going to share, maybe God was going to use that to weigh on their conscience a little bit through the Holy Spirit. I don't know, but it's up to them and the Lord at that point. And what we do with it, we know we, we're doing the right thing. So yeah, people are going to take advantage, but that should not stop us from developing a generous spirit and giving, especially to those who are in need, because we have plenty of those around. So how about this statement? Did it catch you this way when you first read that? It caught me a little bit. Mark 8, 2. I feel sorry for these people, Jesus said. How many times do we hear Jesus getting real with his feelings around other people? We don't, not very often. He's not one to just kind of burst forth with something about how he's feeling about something, and yet he does here. Why do you think he might do that? I think maybe for the same reason that sometimes we parents or grandparents say things around younger children, because we're hoping they'll catch the need to have that same compassion. Maybe he was thinking, I'm going to say this out loud so that the disciples will have a clue. They should be feeling compassion toward these people as well. And so he says, I'm feeling really compassionate toward this group of people right now. They've been with me for three days. What were they doing during those three days? Well, fortunately, we have Matthew's version of this story. It says that they had been coming from all these towns and villages around, some from great distance, and they were bringing the sick and the lame and he was healing them and teaching. So he was doing all the stuff that he'd been doing before, but this time they'd been out there and they had brought their lunches with them because they had enough food for about three days, and it says that they had run out. This brings me to another point, and it's a point of prayer that we need to be thinking about. 
Because Mark Sturkin, one of our supported missionaries, really got it right when he was starting the work of pastor training down in Haiti several years ago. I looked back through my notes to see when we had started that. It's been several years now. It's pretty incredible that he sat around the table with our ministry coordinating team and our elders were present. And we had that light bulb moment when everybody said, you're doing this work. We're teaching this. This looks like the kind of thing we could join you in. Is there a chance that we could actually send teams down and help train? And it came together amazingly well. It was a God thing. But he recognized that some people, like this passage, came from miles around, literally, and it took them a long time, and many of them came by foot. So can you imagine walking a long distance? It would almost be like Joaquin going for a long-distance run on Sunday morning and still showing up for church. What a guy. Well, these pastors had that kind of commitment. And they would show up, but they'd be lagging by about lunchtime. And if we expected them to try to pay for a lunch, a lot of them just didn't have it. They would have had to have gone all the way home at dinner time after the conference was over and get whatever meager resources they had there. So Mark made sure that part of what we were offering these pastors in training was a lunch. And so he uh, contracted with somebody locally in Port-au-Prince to be able to have these lunches delivered just before lunchtime. And these pastors were so grateful for that. They sat around, and I, I just felt so bad. I couldn't even eat most of my first lunch, and I was giving some of it away, and they were delighted to take it, let me tell you. I couldn't imagine going with as little food as these guys had. And some of them were just really nodding off at 2.30. That's about the time when we needed Mike to stand up and give them a cheer or something and wake them back up again. There were ways that we could keep them engaged, but these folks needed that practicality as well. So Jesus is showing us that when we're giving the gospel, yes, it's okay to give the gospel and to meet people's physical needs as well. I think both of those things are just as powerful, and they'll know how much that we care by doing the physical as well. Well, Jesus gives a hint, and I love the hints that he gives. My mom was really good at giving a hint. She would say, goodness, that trash seems to be getting a little bit full. What a great hint. And Jesus gives a little hint here. He says, I feel compassion for these people. For one thing, he said it in such a way that hopefully, I would think, it might have reminded them about the other time when they had the 5,000 men plus women and children so that it started to sound familiar to them. And then when he started launching into this thing, we were hoping that maybe one of the persons would say, oh yeah, this sounds familiar. Peter, remember that? This is really similar to that other time too. Oh my gosh, I bet this is one of those chances for us to see God do a miracle again. I bet he's going to bless our socks off. Did they do that? Uh, no. Look at verse 4. How are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in this wilderness? That's the way they responded. And I can imagine that Jesus is probably going, Okay. They kept seeing the circumstance. They saw the task, but not the people. I heard of another pastor who was a pastor of a great big church, and he saw one of his associates running around. He ignored about six people in the lobby because he had a task that he was wor working on. And he caught that guy later, and he goes, did you know that you ran right past six people that were all trying to catch your eye and just say hi or something? And he goes, well, I was on task. And he goes, the people are your task. The people are your ministry. And I think Jesus was trying to get that across to these disciples to say, boys, let me give it to you again. We're going to give this to you so that you can learn one more time that when I say I have compassion on these people, we're getting ready to do something. And so he got ready to do that. When you come up against a really tough challenge, is the first thing you think of a list of things that God has done in your past 
to help supply your need when you were in a similar situation? I would like to think that's where my mind goes, but it doesn't always do that. Now, my father did. He gave us a great example. My sister and I got home with my parents late one Sunday night because we had Sunday night church back in those days, back when they had the Bibles on two stone tablets. And we got home late after driving an hour away to the church where my dad was preacher, and we stepped in the front door and went squish. And there was water all over the place because what had happened was that the bottom of our water heater had rusted out and just fell out. And when that happens, there's no water to fill that tank so that it can shut off that shutoff valve, the float valve, which means that it keeps thinking, I have to keep giving more water until I'm told to shut it off. So for whoever knows how many hours, that had been just pouring water into the house. It was on a slab. We didn't have a basement, thankfully. But the carpet was just complete loss. And so I would have expected, as late as it was and as tired as he was from expending so much energy ministering all day to people in need, that he would have been upset. But instead he said, well, grab some towels. Let's do some sopping. We got buckets. We got towels. We started sopping the water up. Of course, he turned the water off. We'd wring the towels out into the buckets and then pour the buckets into the toilet. And he, I could hear him because he was on the other side of the wall in the other bathroom. And he said, you remember that time when our air conditioner went out and it was in July and it was 110 outside? God provided some extra money through a bonus that I had not anticipated so that we could afford to buy a new air conditioner. Wasn't that great? And then my mom said, oh yeah, and that reminds me of the time. And they started rehearsing all the good things that God had done when they'd been up against it before. And then somehow, I don't think it was me that started it. it may have been my sister. She was the songstress in those days. Somebody started singing, there shall be showers of blessing, <laughs> the promise of God. So we're singing, sloshing water all over the place with a stinky carpet, singing, there shall be showers of blessing. That's the right attitude. And I've never forgotten that because he gave such a great example. And I wonder if Jesus was maybe hoping that the disciples would have that kind of attitude. But instead, it's like, no, they still got some learning to go yet. And I realize in reading through this passage that I still have some learning to go yet. Because when I start to come up against something like that, I need to remind myself, stop, look back. Remember all those times that might have been somewhat similar to this time. But God got us through every one of those. He can certainly get us through this one as well. Good attitude. So here's some lessons from the 4,000. First, let's look at the similarities. And we're going to look at some differences. In both feedings, they were miraculous. They multiplied the bread and the fish. They were both in desolate locations. And if we're looking for a difference, it will slide in there. They were different locations, by the way. Jesus had compassion on the crowds both times. Crowds were organized both times, a little differently in each, but they were organized. Jesus had said, how many loaves do we have? Both times. He prays both times. He gathers the leftovers or have them. He has the disciples gather the leftover. The people were satisfied in each of those times. There's so many similarities that I can understand why somebody might have said, oh yeah, this is probably just the same event. But we need to learn to look at the details if we're going to really read through this and not just assume that something is just thrown in there like that. If somebody wrote about a group of people that called themselves living water, that met in a gym at a school and they sang a bunch of songs and then they had a scripture lesson and then they fellowshiped together for a few minutes and then they went home. And then somebody else later wrote about 
a group that called themselves Living Water, you'd have to say, oh, well, that was the same event. Why would we do that? <laughs> why would, would we do that today? And why would we do that then? I think it's because there's a proclivity for people to want the Bible to do something or for them to want it to be wrong. And we see so much of that on the internet today, that there are people out there that are so skeptical that they're looking for ways to try to pick it apart rather than just saying, yeah, you know, if you read through this, this really makes sense. And so one of the things that we want to continually remind ourselves about is the Bible is trustworthy. And if we can look at all these details, God has new lessons for us, and he's definitely going to do that through here. Let's look at these differences observed. In the 5,000 uh, plus women and children, how many lows did they find when they were putting the word out to find out? Five. And how many fish? Two fish. Five loaves, two fish. How many baskets were picked up afterwards? Twelve of them. Okay, good. Now, in the 4,000, different numbers. How many loaves were found? Seven. And it says a few small fish. He added that in. And then how many baskets were picked up this time? Seven this time. Okay. So in both Matthew and Mark, the writers record the number of people who were fed in both miraculous feedings, and there were differences there. Both gospel writers, which means there's corroboration, record the specific number of loaves and fish available in each feeding. Both record the number of baskets picked up, 12 baskets after the 5,000, 7 after the 4,000. Now, in real estate, what's the one word that people say it's all about? Location, location, location. So in Scripture, if we're looking for good truths and we're going to be good exegetical investigators, then what's the one word? It's context, context, context. So what theological lesson is God showing us here? What's he revealing to us about himself? Well, in the first miracle, the 5,000, it took place in a predominantly Jewish crowd. The second, the 4,000, took place in a predominantly Gentile crowd. That's why the differences in location were important, for one thing. And that fits the theme Mark has already started to establish for us if we've been tracking through some of these miracles where he has gone. He comes back over to the Jewish side. He goes back over to the east of the Jordan onto the northeastern side. He does all these different things to the Gentile crowd. Mark is showing us that Jesus is starting to foreshadow what was predicted all the way back in Abraham. I'm going to bless all the nations through your descendants. And I'm going to start with the Jews first, and then I'm going to expand it to the Gentiles. Mark, you did a great job last week. Thanks for filling in for me, by the way. He did a good job of showing us again that we cannot divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. And we can't say it was a different God of the Old Testament than of the New Testament. Same God, different details, different yahoos that he had to deal with back in the Old Testament. But he was patient enough to keep drawing them back and giving them lessons and reminding them, these are the consequences because of your disobedience, folks. But now you can get back on track. So it's the same God. And as we see this great theme coming all the way through to the New Testament, Mark is fleshing that theme out as well. The gospel is going to be given to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And he's certainly doing that here. So an interesting note. I love this one. These details are great because you feel like an investigator. In Mark 8 feeding of the 4,000. The word used here is just loaves. You think, okay, in English, loaves. NBD. In that culture, though, these generic loaves would have been leavened. But in Mark 6, the 5,000, the feeding took place near the time of the Passover. So that would have been a Jewish audience. And that means because of the time when that took place and the kind of harvest they had, it would have been barley loaves, and that would have been unleavened. 
So we have the unleavened loaves in the Jewish feeding, and then we have the leavened loaves for the Gentile feeding. Interesting, isn't it? Now, there's only one time in Scripture, this is one of those light bulb moments for me, when a leavened loaf is offered as a part of an offering. When is that? It was at Pentecost. They had waited for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, and then they're given this order, now you're supposed to go into all the world, including the non-Jews, and it was a leavened loaf rather than unleavened. There's a Jewish setting and a Gentile setting, and it moves from one to the other, and it is so consistent as we look into the language and the context of these Passover ceremonies and the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Interesting. In the second miracle, the 4,000, when Jesus says that he has compassion on them, he doesn't say they're like sheep without a shepherd. Why is that? Because they're Gentile. They weren't God's sheep. Israel was thought of as being the sheep, and God was the good shepherd. So he's doing some contrasts all the way through both of these miracles to show us that there's the Jewish and the Gentile version of this. Now, some people try to make a bigger deal about it. I've actually preached it in my earlier days. I would probably rip up those sermons and throw them out now. And they would make a big deal about the numerology. And they say, oh, the 12, that's supposed to be the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, could be a case for that, I suppose, maybe. I looked into that a little bit, and it's weak, I'd have to say. Uh, It does fit, but I don't think that's the main point. Or they could say the 12 baskets, the small baskets, were so that the disciples would have their faith built up because they said, there's one basket for each of us. So we were worried about food. But look, even after everybody has filled until they're just overflowing, there's still enough for all of us too. That's cool as well. That's a nice thing. But I don't think it's about the numerology. About the seven, they say, oh, that's the number of fulfillment for the Gentiles. So now he's got enough of the gospel for everybody, which is true. And again, that's kind of cool. But I don't think it's about the gene- genealogy. Let me take you to one word that's another great light bulb moment. Are you ready to have your world rocked with just one world word? It's the word basket. Here's another observation that requires a little bit of digging in the context and the language. It's the, there are two different Greek words for basket. Say the word basket with me. That's correct. That's what we say in English. I don't know what they are in Greek. But we know that they're basket. But they're two different words. In Jewish context, you would see that that word means a small basket. So in that 5,000 feeding, the Jewish crowd, they would have had these 12 smaller baskets picked up. And they would have known that because that's the word they used when they were talking about these different festivals and Passover and that sort of stuff. We don't get that. We're not Jewish. And we don't use Greek. But that's what that word meant. But there's another more generic word that's used for basket, and it's especially used in Greek and in Gentile word, and that's the larger basket. That's the same word used in which Paul was let down over the wall when there were some Jews that had an uprising. They wanted to take his life, and some other Christians found out about that plot, the assassination plot, and so they let Paul down in a basket over the wall. Big basket. So in the Gentile feeding, the 4,000, you've got the Gentile version of that basket, which is a big seven Seven baskets of big ones and 12 little ones. But again, we've got the Jewish and the Gentile versions of these things. Interesting. So, look what Jesus says when he recounts the miracles. He uses two words as well. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. 
And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets? Do you see how Jesus is already recounting both of these as though they were separate incidents as well? That's kind of important. He says, and I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000. How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They're going, seven. Okay, that was Mark 8, 19 and 20. So even Jesus remembers and recounts specifically not only the number of these things that were picked up, but he uses the same word for the different types of baskets there as well. And then Jesus asks the disciples, do you still not understand? And I would think maybe in context with all of this stuff that I've just laid out to you, they would hopefully say, oh, of course, now we get it, Lord. You're going to give the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. They still didn't get it. Not right away. They were starting to. God is really good at continuing to reveal himself. And sometimes he'll do it in many similar ways, but maybe not identical ways. But in context, I really believe the emphasis that Mark has in giving these two different versions and Matthew is not the number of baskets. It's not the number of fish. It's the Jews and the Gentiles, and it's a gospel, and it's God's plan. So let's look again at this little verse from Isaiah the prophet. It's a fantastic verse. Isaiah 49, 6. You, of course, you can tell who this is going to be pointing at. You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Mark shows us how Jesus is carrying out these messianic promises as given to us by Isaiah. And he's expanding his work as an overflow of his ministry, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Say it with me, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Do you want to see the main point of these two? It's first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Mark gives us these three beautiful examples of the Jews first and the Gentiles. First one's really blatant, casting out the demon from the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And she even got the allusion to that. She wasn't offended. You know, well, even the dogs can eat the crumbs off of the children's table. She understood the Jews were the children. They were the dogs, the Gentiles. But it's first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And then the deaf mute who was healed in Gentile territory. And then there's the feeding of the 4,000, which we just looked at, also in Gentile territory. So we see the same order is carried out as promised in the Old Testament, Jesus is showing us that he is, in fact, setting us up for that as well. And then in the book of Acts, boom, it really becomes clear. In marching band, I, I really enjoyed being at the Michigan game a couple of weeks ago when we got to see him beat Penn State. And the marching band is so thrilling for me because I was a trombone-playing marching guy when I was in high school. And we were taught not to telegraph our steps. In other words, if we were going to be adjudicated, which we were at times, if somebody was leaning in the direction they're supposed to go, the judges would call you out on that. They said, ah, you're telegraphing. You're supposed to make everything clean and crisp so that nobody knows which direction you're going. So go, boom, you just, boom, you'd start right out with that. If you're going to do a, a right turn, you don't go drift, drift, drift. You go, boom, and you go to the right. Or if you go to the left, you boom, and you go to, the, and I'm not going to march right out of the frame for the camera, I promise that's telegraphing your steps. Now, we're not supposed to do that in marching band. And yet here Jesus is actually on purpose telegraphing what he's trying to do. He is fulfilling everything that Isaiah promised that he would fulfill. And he's showing other people, including the disciples, what God's plan is 
He's telegraphing it for us. Why don't the disciples get it right away? It's the same reason that a lot of us don't get spiritual truths right away. Because we're all spiritually blind. That's a thing that comes up a lot in Scripture. You can see it an awful lot in the New Testament as well. There's a spiritual, I like to call it more of a color blindness. You know what it's like when you go to school and you take these colorblind tests and there's this one kid in the class that says, all I see is a bunch of dots. Well, we're all like that one kid when it comes to spiritual blindness. All of us. We can't see the truths that are out there apart from God and his wonderful grace and mercy helping remove the specks or changing whatever needs to be checking, uh, changed so that we can actually see what's really there for us spiritually. Every time Jesus does something like healing a blind person, he's pointing to a spiritual dimension as well, a spiritual truth. And there are so many that didn't get it right away. So what does God do? He doesn't say, well, I told you 10 times already. 10 is all you got. If you didn't get it by now, forget about it. He doesn't say that. He's so patient that he just keeps repeating again and again with new versions of what he's been trying to get across to them so that he can, he can show them himself and his character and his love for them until they finally get it and they start to see it and it becomes clear. Take art Clappen. I thought I first read it and I thought I was going dyslexic for a second. I thought it was Kaplan, but it's Clappen, K-L-A-P-A-N. Art Clappen, who was a Jewish school teacher in Brooklyn. That's New York, not the one out in the Irish Hills, the Michigan version. This is the New York version, where they talk about that, like that. And so Art loved to sing, but he was a Jew. So where could he sing? Well, he's going to go to this community choir, and he joins the community choir. And guess what they get to perform one December? Handel's Messiah. And so Art, who's learning all these words, is singing things like, For unto us a child is born, and behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And I know that my my Redeemer liveth, and worthy is the Lamb that was slain. He's singing these, he's memorizing, and he's practicing, and he's rehearsing, and he's getting it again and again and again. Thankfully, Handel is very repetitious in some of his writing as well. So he's getting it not only repetitious in the number of rehearsals, but in the number of times he's singing it per song. You know, oh my goodness. So by the time they got to perform this thing, you can already see where this is going. Art finally took that step over the line of faith because God was removing the color blindness from him and he was able to see the Lord in living color. And he was able to sing with everybody else and mean it, hallelujah. That's what God does for everybody, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And aren't we glad that he doesn't stop revealing himself, that he's consistent about that. And folks, if you've got folks in your life that you're praying for and you hope that they will get it one day, you can be a part of that persistence. Living your life in a way that shows them the Lord. And as much as they are able to, when you know that the wall is coming down and they're open to a spiritual conversation, having those spiritual conversations as well, it may take a lot of repeat exposures. But God was patient enough to give us those kinds of exposures. We can be patient enough to give others that same kind of patience. Because I really do long for some of the people that I know and love to get to that point that they see with all their mind, oh, Jesus really is who he claimed to be. He's the son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He fulfilled everything. He makes life new again, and he creates new creations in Christ for those who follow him. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that you are so patient, and I'm grateful for 
scholars who help point us in the right direction, like some that I stumbled across as I'm studying for this particular message, I'm still seeing things, even at my age, I'm seeing new things that are fresh and they come alive and your scripture becomes alive in my heart. And I pray that will be true in many other people's hearts as well. And I pray that you'll be patient enough and consistent enough in revealing your character and your identity so that many, many more people can get it and grasp it and be able to trust you with their lives because you are real and you make a difference for eternity and you give our life meaning. And we thank you for that. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.